Welcome to the Greater Southington Business Podcast, the local podcast that tells you stories behind the products, services, and nonprofits you interact with every day. This episode is sponsored by Northshire Consulting, your local independent investment advisory firm. Here's your host, Brian Williams. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Greater Southington Business Podcast. I'm here with author Chuck Maselli. Chuck recently released a book called Wounded Angels. Wounded Angels is a book that covers a lot of interesting topics, and it does so with a little bit of local flavor to it. So the book starts a little bit in Brooklyn and moves to the Bristol-Southington area, and he actually mentions a lot of Southington businesses by name, so I thought it would be interesting to have him on. So we cover the book. Uh, Obviously, we go into that without giving away too many spoilers. We talk a little bit about the publishing industry and the, the challenges and opportunities there, and we get into some of the, briefly get into some of the legal aspects of actually mentioning businesses by name in, in the book, which I thought was interesting. So without any further ado, here's Chuck. So how long ago did you start writing Wounded Angels? I started 15 years ago, but then uh, dropped the book. Uh, I, I wasn't ready to finish it at that point. Uh, and uh, actually wrote another book, complete other book, wrote it, publicized it, got it out uh, in between, uh, and uh, only probably about four years ago, picked this one up again and really started working in earnest. And how long have you been writing for in total? Well, my first book was a textbook, and that came out in 1979, so quite a while. I imagine the business aspect of being an author has changed quite a bit since then, obviously, right? Well, the business aspect from the standpoint that there are so many avenues. Uh, The first book I wrote, I got paid to write. Uh, And that probably was a bad thing for me because it gave me a false impression. It was people are going to come to you and they're going to ask you, would you write a book for us? And we'll pay you to write it. uh, And then we'll pay you to go around the country talking about it. Well, that was because it was a specialty book. It had a niche audience, and it was a very important, timely book at the time, uh, and it was nonfiction. So kind of all the stars align. Uh, Much, much different than writing a novel, uh, where basically uh, you start from scratch, and you have to convince everyone else in the world that this is a good book, and do you want to represent me? Do you want to publish me? Do you want to review me? Do you want to read me? Uh, that's a much different process, and there are many, many avenues. Uh, uh, so it's it, it's a very, very steep learning curve. So let's get into this book a little bit. So it starts in, in Brooklyn, so you have a, a bit of a personal connection there. Oh, yeah. I, uh, much of the book, probably 80 to 90% of it, is based on real people, real places, real events. Um, there's, there's a good 10% of the book, probably, that's completely fictionalized. But I lived in Brooklyn. Um, so did the, inspir- the person who was the inspiration for the book, my, my wife's mother, my mother-in-law. Uh, and uh, so the book takes place in Brooklyn, in the neighborhoods in which I lived, uh, Atlantic Avenue, Fulton Street, uh, uh, the kind of places that we went to, the, the local uh, soda shop, the, the candy stores, the, the, the uh Tailors and the the clothing stores on Atlantic Avenue and the A and P and the butcher market where the guys stood out front in their blood stained aprons. Yeah. And you wrote this from a female's perspective, which uh, tell me a little bit about how you got to there. And was this your first time writing it that way? 
Uh, yes. Uh, my last book was written in the third person. It was written about someone. Uh, so it's, it's called Omniscient uh, Viewpoint, uh, almost like God's looking down at everyone and narrating, this is what this person's doing, this is what this person's doing, this is what this, is what this person thinks. <clears throat> I tried that with Wounded Angels. I actually wrote the entire book from this third-person viewpoint talking about the characters, but it wound up flat because my main character is this woman who's going through uh, a crisis in her life after losing her husband after more than 50 years of being married in a very close, loving relationship. Um, and, and so I'm writing about this woman and the emotions just weren't coming through at all. Um, so uh, what really helped was to change the narrative completely. And I started rewriting the entire book right from the beginning, but this time wrote it from her perspective with her doing the talking, uh, talking about her own life. And when I did that, I, I found I was able to get into her skin and into her mind and get in touch with her emotions. And it came off much more authentic. Now, I really had some serious doubts about whether as a man I could actually capture this woman's feelings. But I found that to be remarkably easy, probably because I also knew intimately, knew the story and the characters and uh, walked through this experience with my mother-in-law of losing her husband and the, the terrible depression that she went through and this prolonged grief. Uh, and then step by step, slowly emerging from that. And so uh, I could really get in touch with the feelings. I imagine since you've been out talking about the book, you've had people that have read it approach you with similar stories, either personal stories or somebody else in their family who's gone through this very common occurrence of losing a spouse and struggling to move forward. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, <clears throat> it's funny. I was doing a presentation last night at a civic organization and uh, the person who was most affected by the talk was not someone sitting in the room it was a waitress who was coming in and out of the room and every now and then she'd pick up what i was saying as she was serving people and she actually stopped waitressing and came over to me during the meeting because i had i had uh, finished my presentation I was sitting down and they were doing business aspects and started up this conversation around her having that kind of experience, losing her, her husband and the isolation that she felt. It connected with her so powerfully. She really wanted and needed to talk about that right then and there. And that's why I wrote the book. I, it's a universal experience. Sooner or later, all of us will lose someone we love in our lives. If we live long enough, it's going to happen to us. And for most of us, Phil, they'll be, we'll go through those stages of death and dying. And at some point we will accept that as the reality and then take ownership of our lives and, and, and start moving forward slowly. Uh, and the, the pace will be different. But some people, uh, like my mother-in-law in this particular case, can't, and they can't get over that. And they, they could dwell for years in that grief, unable to help themselves and feeling as though no one in the world ever could. 
because no one, no one could ever understand what they're going through. And I'm hoping that the book acts as a catharsis where people reading the book will say, oh my God, that's me. That's what I'm feeling and open themselves up to talking to other people, to, uh, to, to facing the pain and, and working their way through. And what's interesting about this main character is she has she has her family, she has her her daughters and her grandchildren, but she also relies heavily in this case the the Bristol Senior Center. But she has that mix of having the family and also that community that she can tap into. Because I imagine there's things that you can tell your family that you can't tell members of your community or a social organization, and and vice versa. So I thought it was interesting that she has both to rely on in this situation. And probably even more interesting is that even though she has all of those resources available to her, she's unable to avail herself. Um, it isn't until, and, and, and that was the, the the fascinating part to me going through this, uh, that it isn't until she meets this other woman who's this eccentric, larger than life, uh, bombastic woman. Um, and, and, and the power of that relationship was that the other woman didn't care that she was in pain or grieving. She had her own problems and they befriended each other, not, not despite those disabilities, but because of um, where each of them gave the other complete space to be who you are. But at the same time, don't expect me to, to coddle you or to sympathize with you, or to pat you on the back. It's like, look, you got your problems, I got my problems. And they wound up helping each other through this odd arrangement. I just thought it was fascinating. I, I had, as I said, I went through this with my mother-in-law, and uh, it, this, this lasted all a whole summer, where we would go tag sailing, and we would have these breakfasts, and I, like everybody else, could not reach her until I'd mention this woman, who I called Doris in the book. And I'd say, you know, how's this woman that you met at the senior center, Doris? And goes, oh, Doris. And then she starts telling me about the crazy things this woman is doing. And I realized she couldn't concentrate on her grief and her despair because she had to spend so much energy controlling this other woman's crazy behavior because the other woman would go off and start doing things and she'd say, no, no, you can't do that. Um, and, and by the end of the summer, they had spent enough time together and enough conversations and things that she wound up working her way through this grief to where she went back to the senior center and there a man asked her to dance and they started to become close and they fell in love and they eventually remarried. When she was 80 years old, she went into a second marriage. And I said to her, she was getting ready to marry. I said, do you realize God sent you an angel, your own personal angel, a very, very strange one, but an angel at that. As much as we all know Maureen, we all know Doris too. So God, yeah, I love Doris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's a, she's a lot of fun. So, um, so you deal with a lot of issues in here uh, without giving away too much of the book. But a lot of it's you go through a couple different wars and you go through some some mental health issues there. Um, 
Was that also part of a personal story or is that just part of what you wanted to bring into the storyline? Both. It's a, it's a combination. Um, <clears throat> there was a real conversation uh, over a chess game in the, in the, in the story. And uh, that was, that really came out of a, a debate between my father-in-law and myself about what is patriotism. And it, it, it revolved around the night that Lou, Lieutenant William Calley was convicted of the My Lai massacres um, because I was in the Marine Corps Reserve at the time and uh, he had served in the Pacific in World War II. Uh, and when Cali was convicted, he was bitterly upset about it. Uh, as, as a person who had served in the military, who had fought in the war, who was in combat, he felt strongly that Callie was following orders and that you follow orders. If somebody gives you an order, you don't question it. You do it because that's, that's what it means to be in the military. I, on the other hand, looked at what Callie did and regardless of having been given the order, what was the morality of what he did? And so, you know, he challenged me. He says, well, what would you have done? And I said, I, you know, I, I would have hoped I'd have the courage to shoot Callie to stop what he was doing. And he just could not understand that. Now, all of that uh, came out of, uh, and the reason I put that in there was because of a very common experience. If you're in a, in a large group, and in that group there are people who have served in the military in combat, and the issue of combat comes up in the conversation, frequently those people will sit back and distance themselves. They won't enter into the conversation and they won't talk about their combat experience. And that's a very common occurrence almost across the board. Um, it's much different having been in it and experienced it than it is talking about it in abstract terms for someone who has. And so uh, in the book, I wanted to explore that in more depth. What, what was behind that? silence what was behind that distancing and so what i did is i married two different things there was that conversation that i had and then if you've seen the the movie hacksaw ridge that really talks about real combat experience of people who were in okinawa who, who fought in those battles in the in the pacific and so what i did is i took that uh, that that scenario uh research that i did on the Japanese and the Americans on Okinawa, uh, this group of young, uh, and that's a fascinating story. In, in, in America, many of the young women joined the nurses' corps. And so they, they as, as troops would come back from overseas, they would nurse them back to health here in the United States. Well, their counterpart on Okinawa, there was a, a group of Japanese high school girls, and they were called the Lily Corps. And they were actually on Okinawa, in the caves with the Japanese soldiers, nursing them during combat. Well, toward the end, when the Americans were overrunning the island, the Japanese knew they had lost the island. They told these girls, you know, you're on your own, take off. And don't let the Americans catch you, because if they do, they'll rape you and murder you. So some of these girls threw themselves off cliffs not to be caught. And, and, and so I, I took kind of the elements of soldiers fighting in the Pacific. I took the, the Lily Corps, um, and then I put all of those into this 
this scene that happens on Okinawa with Maureen's husband. Now that is fictionalized. The argument that led up to it, that was real. That was between me and her husband. And, and, and uh, then I moved into this fictional aspect of the story, which is based on the real experiences of soldiers and this lily court that actually happened on Okinawa. But, but the scene is fictionalized. Okay. Vietnam is is a is a you know significant part of the book too. So let's talk a little bit about how that that figures in later on. Well, that uh, as I said, that was the launching pad for this story of uh, what happened in Okinawa. This argument about Lieutenant Cowley and the My Lai massacre and how that whole period affected the American public. Like I said, I was in the Marine Reserves during Vietnam. Fortunately, my unit didn't get called up, uh, but I certainly remember the, the, the soldiers returning from overseas, and many of them were people that I was in high school with and, and I had grown up with, and some of them didn't come out back at all. Others came back um, totally changed. I had friends who came back who were not the same people that left. Uh, and then there were uh, you know, guys coming off the boats and, and people especially after me lie, protesters, instead of coming back as a hero serving your country, you, you come off the ramp of the boat and people are spitting at you and yelling baby killer. So we went through that, that whole era. And tell you the truth, for a long time, myself and anyone else who served in, during that period, you didn't go around saying that you were in the military. Because if you did, people looked down on you. Nowadays, it's, it's amazing to me. You go to uh, um, Target, I think it's Target, Lowe's, Lowe's uh, the, the department store, and there's a, there's a space there, and it says veteran parking. During that whole period of Vietnam and for many, many years after, <laughs> you, you wouldn't want to admit you were in the service, let alone have a parking space to say thank you or to wear a military cap. If I wear my Marine Corps military cap now, people will thank, they'll say, thank you for your service. Back then, they would have said, you served in the military? You like killing people? This is what gets you off? So it, it, the world has changed dramatically. So in the book, I tried to, tried to capture that as well, that whole period of social upheaval, uh, the, the Vietnam, the sex revolution, uh, the burning of the bras, the, the burning of the American flag, the first gay church in the, in, in the country. There was just so much that changed so fast for so many people that uh, their world kind of crumbled and, and as the new world emerged. And it was a very tumultuous time. Yeah. And it seems like things sort of, as they moved into Connecticut, things sort of started to slow down for them a little bit, and they're very happy to get their own property. And and how did the how did the move from Brooklyn to to Connecticut? Um, how do you think that shaped them? Well, a long time coming. First of all, uh, as it says in the book, and as it was, was in real life, uh, Frank in the book, Maureen's husband. Uh, doesn't want to move until he can save up enough money to pay for the house in total. Doesn't want a mortgage. Again, kind of going back to the era which he grew up standing on the bread lines during the Depression. Someone who doesn't um, doesn't want to rely on fate. To, to, you know that the, the, the economy is going to keep going good. No, the economy may fail at any time. So save everything. Uh, uh, 
make sure you don't owe people a lot of money, etc. Uh, so um, that took a long time coming. Then being able to have a house of their own. Well, in Brooklyn, uh, all the houses were connected. I, I was amazed when I moved to Connecticut. And once again, this is you know, my experience paralleling the experience of the people in the book. I was amazed at the amount of grass there was between houses. Because where, where I lived, all the houses were connected. My backyard was the roof of the store that was adjacent to our house. And we played on the roof. That was, that was the backyard. If I wanted to go to, uh, to see grass, I'd go take a walk about a oh, half, three quarters of a mile to Highland Park. And I'd be able to walk around the park. That's where the grass was and the, and the play uh, playground and stuff like that. But uh, now you move to Connecticut and there's trees everywhere and there's lawns, big lawns, uh, lots of space between houses. Um, totally different experience. And so I think that it also has a calming effect. Uh, again, the, the calming effect prior to coming to moving to Connecticut would be to take vacations and go to the Catskills. And the Catskills were very similar to what the experience of Connecticut is. These rolling hills, the, the, the grassy areas, the, the trees. Uh, and so uh, later in the book, there's a return to the Catskills. And it, it's funny, uh, this is my second novel, and uh, I realized there's one common thread in both, and that is sooner or later, the characters in the novel wind up at Koch's restaurant <laughs> in Leeds, Cairo, uh, uh, Catskills. This is a beautiful area. <laughs> the character of Doris, how much did you have to embellish that? How much did you need to play that up? Or were you able to draw on uh, specific instances of, of the real life Doris? Uh, poor, poor Doris. She is the most fictionalized, most embellished character. There was a real life Doris and she was eccentric. <clears throat> but novels uh when you write a novel, people are interested in, in something out of the ordinary, some, an experience which, uh, which goes beyond. So the elements of Doris are true uh, in, in terms, there are people, if you're a waitress, God help you, because you get people who come in and really abuse waitresses, give them a really tough time. Well, Doris does this to the extreme, much more than in, in real life. But there's an underlying reason for that, and um, that uh, I, I wanted to use that character trait of hers as as a uh, as an illustration of just how eccentric she could be, and also to 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 play off Maureen, who's very much the opposite. This is someone who cares about everybody, who's who's always trying to be helpful, who's always trying to be uh, gentle and delicate with people. And she's paired up with this other person who just gets her jollies off of making people miserable or taking advantage of people. Uh, and so I decided I wanted to have fun with Doris's character. And I did. And it, 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 the wonderful part is there's no neutral people who read the book. You either love Doris because you say, oh, my God, she's so great. I wish I could be like her. Or you absolutely hate her and say, what a. What a horrible, horrible person. I don't know how you, how you could stand to be in the same room with someone like that. So there's no middle ground. And that's what I wanted to do with Doris. I wanted to create a character uh, with, with uh, personality traits that were so extreme that there'd be no middle ground. 
Uh, and I think I succeeded well because that's been the universal reaction. Everybody is like, oh, God, Doris. <laughs> right. And one of the things I found myself doing is, okay, if I was in Marine shoes and I was out with Doris, would I have had the courage to say something? How would I have addressed that situation? Or um, Because we've all been in similar situations when it's, do you just kind of let it go? Or do you approach the uncomfortableness then or later? So that, that sort of drew you into to Maureen's world a little bit. So I thought that was interesting. You use a lot of real, real life places in the book, a lot of local businesses. Why, why was that important to you to use those and not just use generic names? Because obviously somebody reading who's not in tune to local businesses might think they're fictional. But why is it important for you, for people that are local that read that book to see the actual names in there? Mm -hmm. um, I, I played with that for a long time. That, in fact, I think I start off with fictitious names. Um, and I actually, uh, I, I looked up some legal issues around that. You know, if you use a, a real name, um, it, it, can you do that? Uh, and so then I started going to a lot of the businesses and saying, you know, I'm thinking, I eat here. I love it here. I love coming into this place. I'm writing a book. And I would love to use your business as an illustration. Would that be okay? And they were thrilled. I mean, they were like, no, I, I was very important. I, all of the places that are in the book are cast in a positive light. If I was going to talk about this place that was cheating on their taxes and was, was cheating the customers and uh, what is it, uh, Les Miserables, you know, uh, putting cat liver in the, in the, in the, and pretending it's me, uh, I, then obviously I'd use a fictitious name. But the, the thing that impresses me so much, especially now living in Connecticut, in New York, many of the store owners I never knew. Um, you know, you'd, you'd go to the store, you'd get your stuff, and you'd go home. But so often here, I'll go into a restaurant, and the, the person who runs the restaurant knows me. And they'll say, hi, Chuck, uh, or I'll go into a grocery store and they, they'll know me. Um, and then there are, for instance, Topps Market. I used to work uh, helping out at the Sunnyton Apple Harvest Festival. And we had this trailer where all the volunteers would come, especially if it was cold or whatever, for a few minutes to get warm and go out again. Um, and then one day, uh, these trays arrived. And the trays are filled with cookies and sandwiches and stuff like that. I said, wow, that's pretty nice. Thank you. They said, don't thank us. Uh, thank Topps Market. They donated all this stuff. Well, I'm sitting there and I'm saying, my God, that's a lot of food for this little business. Because Topps Market's a small little market for this little business to just donate. And I was so impressed by that that ever since then every year we have this big christmas party in my family and i buy lottery tickets one for every one of the families i always buy them at the tops because I, I figure if you do that much for the community i want to do something for you so we go out of our way to shop there um and likewise uh, fancy bagels if you go to the local library you'll see it says bagels and books and so there are these book readings and this little bagel shop donates these bagels so I came to realize that when you talk about being in a community, 
the, the stores, the little shops, the, the restaurants, the grocery stores, uh, the bagel places, um, and a lot of these small businesses. You go into a small business and, uh, you know, they, they, they sell security services or whatever. They, they recognize you when you walk in. And they sit down and they talk with you and, you know, uh, what are your needs? What, what can I do for you? Um, and, and what I realized is that is the community. Otherwise, we're just a bunch of houses. And yes, I might know my neighbor and we might have a little group that the neighbors get together. But that's very limited. It's very small. But when you talk about I'm part of a community, well, what knits that community together are all these small businesses. Uh, and, and so I thought, I want to, I want to make that part of the book. Uh, and so Lake Compounds, uh, the Aquaturf, Grace's Restaurant, uh, uh, all sorts of small businesses that I know personally in the town. And in Bristol, the Bristol Senior Center plays a central role in this whole thing. Um, I wanted to include all of those and have these characters kind of move through this world. And, and show you how that world is their community and that community is knit together by all these little businesses. Yeah, and that's great. And for the local local reader, it helps you identify with the characters even more because you can say, well, I'm looking at the world through her view, but I also sat in her seat, literally, at the diner I sat in her seat. So I think that's interesting. So um, the, the business, the book business right now, um, how long do you spend normally pr promoting and getting the word out there before you start on your next book or even have you started okay, on the I, next I've started on the next book, uh, Black Hill Drowning. My father was a coal miner in Pittston, Pennsylvania. He died of the black lung. And that book um, will be about life and death in the anthracite coal mines of northeastern Pennsylvania. Wounded Angels, I started promoting and marketing about a year ago. And fairly intensely six months ago. And frankly, neither of those was long enough. My first book, I didn't promote at all before I wrote it, Amanda's Room. This was a paranormal thriller. I just sent it out into the world. And then I started promoting. That was way, way too late. Um, no matter how well written a book is, it does no good unless people know about it. And the only way they know about it is that you're promoting it and you're marketing it. And you're getting the word out. So similar to what we're doing today. Right? I mean, this is just this is another audience that will hear this, listen to it, and hopefully mention it to somebody else. And what you look for is kind of what happens in a fire situation. Um, in a fire, uh, if a fire starts in a sofa in a corner of the room, at some point, that room gets so hot that you have what's called flashover, where everything in the room all of a sudden come together and, and you get this huge flame. Well, uh, in social science, you call it critical mass. Uh, you, 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 you light a fire here, and you light a fire somewhere else, and you light a fire somewhere else, and you light a fire somewhere else. And sooner or later, people start mentioning in a conversation, oh, geez, no, I just read this book, Wounded Angel. And then somebody else says, Wounded Angels, I, I read that book myself. And somebody else says, oh, I saw the play, it's Seven Angels on that. And it, like flashover, all of a sudden, the, the, the conversations begin to multiply and you get a synergy and it reaches critical mass. And then 
everybody seems to know about it. And then everybody's telling everybody else. And all of a sudden, you have a bestseller. That takes a tremendous amount of time and energy and work. And like I said, with Amanda's room, I was so far behind the curve that I could never build that momentum. With Wounded Angels, I started a year, year and a half ago. And there is a a buzz about the book. But the question is, how big is the buzz? How widespread? I do have people who have written me from Texas, from Pennsylvania, saying that they've ordered the book and they're getting it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it reaches a critical mass to become a bestseller. For Black Hell Drowning, it'll probably take me the next three to four years for that book to be ready. And I'm already starting to think about, okay, how am I going to start marketing that and start getting the word out so that two years from now or three years from now, a year or so before the book even comes out, there's already a tremendous amount of conversation going around about it. Yeah, and that'll be a little bit different because geographically it's not in the place where you live. So you're imagine you're do some um, promotion oh, yeah, work out that way. I was born there. My, my father was a coal miner in that area, but I was born in Pittston, Pennsylvania, and spent the first five, six years of my life there. Um, have gone there every year since, practically. Uh, still have relatives and friends there. And every time I write a new book, I go to Pittston, Pennsylvania and launch the book there as well. In fact, I've already got scheduled to launch or, or to present uh, Wounded Angels at their, their library. That's, to me, that's home. Brooklyn was in between. Connecticut's where I am now. But when I talk about my hometown, it's been some okay. yeah. All right. And so we record this here on uh, January 23rd. So you have a, a local event coming yeah. up. Do you want to uh, speak about that? That's going to be on. Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned that. It's uh, uh, this coming Saturday, uh, January 25th, uh, 3 to 5 p.m. will be the formal book launch for Wounded Angels. I'm partnering for, in a co-launch with uh, Reverend uh, Gordon Ellis, who many people in the Southington area know and love. Uh, Gordon is, in addition to being a retired minister, uh, he is also a singer-songwriter. Uh, and him and his brother Mark have come out with a wonderful album called Love Heals, 19 songs, uh, faith-based songs. Um, and one of the songs on that album is called Injured Angels. Uh, it, it really was written initially to address uh, the, uh, the, the kind of the wounds of uh, people who've been sexually abused, uh, especially the girls in the U.S. gymnast team that made the press so heavily this last year. Uh, but the lyrics of the song spill over into working in the military, into other kinds of abuse, other kinds of grief. And the words could almost be applied 100% to, uh, to Wounded Angels. In fact, the song is called Injured Angels, and that was an earlier working title from that book. And Gordon wrote the forward for the book. So the two of us are going to team up together uh, at First Congregational Church, 3 to 5 uh, on um, Saturday, January 25th. Uh, it is open to the public. It's free. Uh, we'll both be there. We'll have copies of my book. We'll have copies of his album. I will tell the story behind the story, similar to what you and I have been talking about. He will talk about the development of the song album, uh, and uh, we will sign and personalize uh, items that people would like to purchase when they're there. And where can people find your book now? 
uh, hopefully everywhere. Uh, <laughs> it is on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble, and they have both the hardcover and the paperback. Uh, it's also on Kobo. They have the e uh, the ebook. Uh, ebooks are available on all three of those major sites. It's available on dozens of sites. Uh, I think the the site in Australia is called Booktopia or something like that. Um, and uh, Barnes and Noble. If you go to your local bookstore. Uh, it's available through all of the major distributors, Baker and Taylor and Ingram. So if you go to your local bookstore and say, I want to order this, would you get it in from any local bookstore should be able to do it. And I tell people, if you don't want to buy the book, go to your local library and tell them, I have a book club. Please make sure you order copies. The library uh, hopefully will order several copies for your book club and you don't have to pay for them. My concern is that people read the book, not necessarily that they pay the money and buy the book. In fact, most authors, uh, I don't think, uh, if you're in the business of writing books, uh, you're not in the business to get rich. Because like like uh, top athletes, uh, baseball, football, etc., there's a few very highly paid players, and the rest of them are trying to make a living. So as we wrap up, Chuck, is there anything else you want to mention about the book or promotions that we're missing? I guess just the, the standpoint of why read it. Hopefully, people will find it entertaining. I think they will. It's gotten some really great reviews. Um, but uh, more so, I think it, it addresses some universal themes. Uh, it addresses themes of, of patriotism. And um, it, it addresses the universal theme of, of grief and, and moving on. And uh, my hope is that people reading the book uh, will find that it gives them permission. It gives them permission to grieve, but it also gives them permission to pick up their lives and to move on and not feel that somehow they have to be trapped into uh, this unending despair. Uh, and if it does that, then it will be wildly successful. That helps just one person, right? All right. Thanks, Chuck. I enjoyed this. Thanks for coming Thank on. Thank you very much.